Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation and our Lewis Lehrman Auditorium. We, of course, welcome those who join us on our Heritage.org website on all of these occasions. For our in-house guests, we would ask that last courtesy check that mobile devices have been silenced or turned off. And, of course, for those watching online, you're welcome to send questions or comments at any time simply emailing speaker at heritage.org. And we will, of course, post today's program on the Heritage homepage for everyone's future reference as well. Opening our discussion is Darren Baxt, who serves Heritage as our research fellow in agricultural policy. He focuses on agricultural and environmental policy, property rights, as well as agriculture subsidies, trade, and food policy issues. Before joining us at Heritage, he was a policy counsel for the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, Prior to that, he served as Director of Legal and Regulatory Studies for seven years at the John Locke Foundation of North Carolina. He also serves on the Federalist Society Environmental Law and Property Rights Executive Committee. Please join me in welcoming Darren Baxt. Darren. Thank you, John. Um, Thank you all for coming, and I want to thank everybody who's online um, watching. So the Heritage Foundation has been working with many organizations across the ideological spectrum to address the out-of-control farm subsidies. And this issue is really critical to us. Most farmers and most commodities receive little to no assistance um, as related to subsidies. And, And if they do receive subsidies, it's to help them to address any crop losses connected to disasters. You know, that's at least something that arguably could be called a safety net. What isn't a safety net, though, is trying to insulate farmers from competing in the marketplace. It isn't a safety net when 94% of farm program support goes to just six commodities. That's corn, cotton, peanuts, rice, soybeans, and wheat. And even worse, that support is delivered through multiple programs. And those multiple programs, in general, are not helping when there are crop losses, but instead they exist to help make sure that farmers are doing well financially. There's a lot of discussion as to why agriculture needs a safety net when other industries don't. I I think that's the the wrong question, actually. The real question is, why do a small number of commodities grown primarily by the largest producers need so many handouts when almost everyone else in agriculture doesn't need such support? The answer is, they don't. Uh, And today, we're going to have a chance to discuss the need for reforming farm subsidies, and we're going to hear from two leading members of the House of Representatives. This is especially timely because the House is expected to take up its farm bill next week. So so here's the plan for today's event. 
After our feature, feature remarks, we'll have a discussion. And then we'll have questions and answers from all of you. My co-moderator today is Josh Sewell, who's at the end over there. And he's a senior policy analyst from Taxpayers for Common Sense. And he'll be joining me in introducing the distinguished speakers today and help, helping to facilitate discussion. Josh is a fifth-generation Missouri native. He manages research and outreach on TCS efforts to reform the Army Corps of Engineers, agriculture issues, and general government transparency. He's led TSCS's Farm Bill Reform Program since 2012 and brings an understanding of crony capitalism and governmental stimulus efforts forged from coordinating TCS's bank bailout and financial stimulus monitoring program. And I've worked closely with Josh for, for years, and um, I really appreciate you joining us today, Josh. So now it's my honor to uh, introduce our first speaker, Representative Tom McClintock. Representative McClintock represents the people of California's historic gold country in Sierra Nevada in a district that stretches from Lake Tahoe through Yosemite Valley and on to Kings Canyon. Often described as the gold standard for fiscal conservatism in Congress, the National Taxpayers, Taxpayers Union rated him the best vote for taxpayers in the House in 2014 and 2015. Citizens Against Government Waste recently named him as one of only two perfect votes in the House, fighting wasteful government spending. As an outspoken member of the House Budget Committee, McClintock has proposed major fiscal reforms to curb unauthorized appropriations, control mandatory spending, balance the budget, and protect the nation's credit. He's a senior member of the House Natural Resources Committee, which he chairs the Subcommittee on Federal Lands and serves on the Subcommittee on Water and Power, which he chaired from 2011 to 2015. Prior to his election in Congress, McClintock served 22 years in the California legislature, where he became one of its most recognized conservative leaders. He twice received a Republican nomination for state uh, controller, narrowly missing election in 2012 by 23 one hundredths of 1%, um, which is basically the impact that producing premium subsidies would have on farmers, really, and, and the number of acres. Um, he, he ran as the conservative standard bearer for governor in California's historic recall election in 2003. Representative McClintock and his wife, Lori, married in 1987, have two children, and Representative McClintock, thank you so much for coming. Stage is yours. Thank you. Thank you, Darren, for having me. Uh, for folks, thanks for coming. Uh, you know, I can't claim to be an expert on all of the intricacies of the Byzantine web of, of price supports and insurance subsidies and commodity rules and agricultural risk coverage and price loss coverage, marketing loans, disaster aid, and all the other components of, of the mess that we've made of our agricultural markets. But what I do know is this. Prices, if they're left alone, convey a wealth of information upon which consumers depend to make rational decisions. Those rational decisions, in turn, direct all production to the greatest need and all investment to the highest possible use. Now, embedded in the price of a, a cup of coffee that you bought this morning, includes information on political conditions in Colombia, weather conditions in Costa Rica, currency rates of exchange, insect infestations in Brazil, bribery rates in Venezuela, inflationary pressures, what the guy down the street selling it for, uh, just to name a few. Your response 
to that price to drink more coffee, to drink less coffee, or to shift to tea sends signals back to producers what consumers want them to produce more of and to produce less of. But when government interferes in the pricing structure, it's corrupting the data that's necessary to assure that every dollar in the economy is spent to its highest and best use. So it's not just the cost of the agricultural subsidies that are paid by taxpayers. That's just the tip of the iceberg, about $20 billion. It's, it's the cost to consumers. I mean, just sugar supports alone are estimated to add $3.7 billion a year to the cost that consumers pay for uh, uh, sugar in the, um, in the supermarket. It's, but worst of all, it's the misallocation of resources that the subsidies are causing. And, and that is a serious drag on our economy. You know, when government plays this game, risks are masked, inefficiencies go undetected and uncorrected, capital flows from productive to non-productive use, and perhaps the most dangerous of all for a free society, the government begins picking winners and losers. When that happens, the productive sector becomes more and more dependent on and beholden to the government. And both our political and economic systems become riddled with cronyism, corruption, and inefficiency. And that's what we continue to see in the farm bill now before us. For example, crop insurance is subsidized for certain crops in a manner that is unheard of throughout the rest of the economy and, for that matter, throughout the rest of the agricultural sector. Now, we have to ask ourselves, what is insurance? It's the monetization of risk. It's the way we put a price on the risk of any activity. Buy a home in the forest, your, your fire insurance costs more. Buy a home on a floodplain, well, never mind. We've already screwed that one up, and <laughs> that's why we have so many disasters now on floodplains. But left alone, it alerts us to, to the dangers that we may face by pursuing a particular activity. If that insurance is subsidized, then the risk to us is, is, is masked, and we encourage behavior that our own common sense would otherwise protect us from. The insurance is going to be too high on that. We need to do something else. Uh, or in this case, plant something else that's less risky where the insurance costs are lower. In the agricultural sector, that risk may be choosing crops that the market is signaling it just doesn't want or at least doesn't want as much of. By subsidizing crops or subsidizing the insurance of these crops, we end up with surpluses of one commodity at the expense of a shortage of other crops that should have and could have and would have been planted but weren't because government masked the signals that market consumers were sending to those producers. And because these signals are no longer being sent by the market's consumers but instead are being sent by government, it shouldn't surprise us that those with oversized influence in government make out very well. It's often been pointed out that the small farms do very poorly with subsidies. The large farms that can afford lobbying do very well indeed. Well, my, my, what a surprise. You know, it's, it's often argued that, that agriculture is just different. That, of course, begs two questions. First, what exactly makes it different? Fundamentally, it's the same as any other enterprise. It is human labor applied to create a product. The risks of producing different products may differ, but the principle of risk is exactly the same. And second, as Darren's already pointed out, if this is so, why are so many agricultural products excluded from these market interventions? 
Now, the Farm Bill has traditionally been joined with the SNAP reauthorization for the obvious reason that neither could pass on its own. Only in Congress are two bad ideas easier to pass than one bad idea, but there it is. Uh, so let me just address that very briefly. The measure does make some improvements in SNAP, uh, namely limiting categorical eligibility to those actually receiving benefits in other programs and excluding the um, extending the work requirement to able-bodied adults with school-age dependents. But it does nothing to limit SNAP to basic food commodities. It opts instead to pay bonuses for fruits and vegetables while continuing to fund purchases of junk foods. So that's what it is. Two bad bills rolled into one, or one bad bill and one not-so-bad bill all rolled into one. And uh, with that, uh, thank you for your attention and your time, and I look forward to answering any questions. Thanks. All right, thank you for coming today. So I had the pleasure of introducing Congressman Ralph Norman. Um, Congressman Norman is a lifelong resident of South Carolina's 5th District, a product of Rock Hill Public Schools and Presbyterian College in Clinton, South Carolina. Congressman Norman established himself as one of South Carolina's leading businessmen, growing his family's property and construction business into one of South Carolina's most successful commercial real estate developers. Over the course of his career, Mr. Norman has served with a number of organizations dedicated to improving the community. His organizations include the York County Home Builders Association, Children's Attention Home, Salvation Army, and the Medical University of South Carolina Board of Visitors. Mr. Norman has consistently demonstrated his dedication to conservative principles. In his 10 years in the South Carolina House of Representatives, Ralph consistently voted in favor of limited government, financially sound policies, and a strong national defense. A protector of family values, he's actually lived those family values as well, pushing nearly 50 years of marriage to the ever-patient and gracious Elaine Rice Norman, uh, who is also a lifelong resident of South Carolina growing up in Belton. Together they have four children, and unless it has changed in the updates since then, they're 16 and pushing uh, grandchildren. So one thing I think that's interesting about Mr. Norman, too, is that when running to fill the fiscally responsible shoes of former Representative Mick Mulvaney, he used to tell folks, if you liked how Mick Mulvaney voted, you'll love me. So far, so good. Uh, and uh, I like look forward to your leadership and bringing that fiscal responsibility to the Farm Bill. So please welcome Mr. Norman, Congressman. Thank you so much for the introduction, uh, Josh, and, and thanks to the Heritage Foundation. I've always admired what the what your group does when I walk in those these doors. It's the bastion of conservatism and of great ideas. And thank you for uh, y'all. Y'all have set the gold standard for being conservative. Uh, you know what uh, Con Congressman McClintock said was was dead on. Um, we ought to be having this type of discussion on every facet of programs in Congress today. Uh, I'll have a phone call today at 5 to go over from farmers the specifics of what I will talk about. But uh, if we're ever going to get this country back on a financial footing, uh, we've got to do it now. And we've got to question everything. And I had a group, uh, as I'm sure all of us have, that come in to me on a weekly basis. Uh, they're great people. They're lobbyists. They're great salesmen. They had suits on that make this look like Salvation Army suit. And they say, Mr. No Congressman Norman, we need some help. And I said, what kind of help? Well, we need subsidies. Okay, what uh, what dollar amount? 
and it's, it ends with a B. Uh, not a M, not a million, a billion. And uh, my response is, one, where am I going to get the money? And two, I'm a real estate developer. I build commercial projects. If my projects don't succeed, if I build a hotel that fails, who's going to subsidize me? Main Street USA, that business that opens up, who's going to subsidize them? And then you get this big surprise look, well, Congressman, we've got a 1,000 people in your district. And it's real easy for me because, you know, I'm easy to, to, it's easy for me to respond. If they're a one-issue voter on this subsidy and they're going to cast their ballot based on that, either for me or somebody else, my response is, I'm not your man. Go go get another candidate. But uh, it's a pleasure to, 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 uh, look at this bill uh, and to look at what we're discussing today as far as how we can make improvements. Um, the Agricultural Committee got a lot right uh, in H.R. 2, the Agri- Agriculture and Nutrition Act of 2018. I'm encouraged by the changes to the SNAP program, uh, which ensure that able-bodied adults without dependents will be required to work uh, in order to qualify to get food stamps. Uh, the 20 hours, how many hours do we put in, Congressman? It's more than 20 hours a week. How many hours do you put in? It's more than 20 hours a week. This is just a basic uh, good thing that we're having. Uh, additionally, I appreciate the steps that are taken uh, to reduce a regulatory burden on farmers. Uh, I was disappointed, quite frankly, that the Agricultural Committee elected to avoid applying similar reforms uh, to farm programs in the Farm Bill. Analysis from Darren and the Heritage Foundation pointed out that the House Agricultural Committee's Farm Bill not only fails to reform the out-of-control farm subsidy system, uh, but in some cases it, it makes it far worse. The committee passed uh, bills that create new loopholes that make it easier uh, for those wealthy farmers to receive subsidies while at the same time rolling back common-sense payment limits and means testing which they were intended to prevent those that do very well from collecting taxpayer-backed subsidies. Uh, in response to the bill and the committee's failure to address the necessary reforms to the uh, Farm Subsidy Program, I recently introduced H.R. 5629, titled President Trump's Farm Bill Reforms Act of 2018, uh, with my colleague, uh, Dr. Paul Gosart. The bill seeks to codify the reforms to farm programs offered by President Trump and my predecessor, OMB Director Mick Mulvaney. And it was in the 2019 budget request, which the OMB estimates would save uh, $28.6 billion over the next 10 years. These savings are reached not by gutting the farm safety net, but instead by common sense reforms that have been circulated for years in the government watchdog report from the United States uh, government Accountability Office, the Congressional Budget Office, and, of course, the think tanks uh, from both sides of the aisle. I really believe that these reforms rein in taxpayer spending on farm subsidies without jeopardizing the overly generous farm safety net that we provide to the American farmers. All right, this bill does three main things. It reduces subsidies on crop insurance premiums by 15% across the board. Under current law, we, the taxpayers, cover on average 62% of the total premiums for crop insurance. 
Uh, folks, that's, we're just asking that agricultural producers contribute about half of the premium for their crop insurance policy uh, that they take advantage of if they have to, to uh, if, if it has to be applied. Um, and it will result in a $22.4 billion savings over 10 years. Secondly, it limits eligibility for crop insurance subsidies and conservation and commodity programs to producers with a, a gross uh, adjusted gross income of 500000 or less. The Office of Management Budget estimates that this proposal would result in a savings of right at $1.8 billion over 10 years. Finally, it lowers the profit margin that crop insurance companies are guaranteed by the taxpayer by two and a half points. Under the current law, taxpayers fully cover the administrative and operating cost for crop insurance companies to administer policies to the tune of a 14.5% guaranteed ROR. How many of us, how many of you get a 14% return on your real estate investments, on really any other investments? It fluctuates. The office of OMB estimate by reducing this guaranteed rate of return to 12%, 12% would result in a $3 billion saving to the taxpayer over 10 years. If we're serious about tackling this, uh, our nation's problems, we can't be afraid to enact the common sense reforms such as these uh, outlined in this bill. We're proud to support the bill that uh, has earned the respect and of advocates like the Heritage, like the Taxpayers for Common Sense, the R Street Institute, Freedom Works, and the National Taxpayers Union. And we look forward to continuing uh, to advocate for re reining in taxpayer spending on farm subsidies without jeopardizing the safety net that the nation uh, now has provided and will provide in the future. Thank you so much for attending. Thank you very much, and we'll have a discussion. Um, Josh, I just go back and forth. Um, this has been kind of addressed in, in the presentations, but it, it's common to hear that farmers need to be protected from the market, just like they need to be protected from droughts, pests, and other natural disasters. In fact, there's a, a line on the USDA website that basically says exactly that. They're equating protection from the market with droughts and natural disasters. How would you respond to this kind of argument that farmers need to be protected from the market? Well, farmers are no different than any other producer in our society. Uh, and producers are servants of the market. The market commands and producers respond to those commands. The market res uh, commands through a structure of prices where people making decisions every day with their dollars in the marketplace are constantly voting on what society needs to produce. What are their needs? Those signals have got to be accurate uh, when they're received by producers. Otherwise, producers uh, 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 end up uh, creating uh, surpluses of products that people do not need or do not need that much of, uh, at the same time neglecting the needs of those same consumers uh, by not producing uh, products that the consumers are demanding. So to say that, that any producer in the marketplace uh, ought to be protected from the market um, completely disconnects uh, the, 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 the pricing mechanisms which assure that the market is responding to the needs of consumers. That, that is ultimately an anti-consumer argument. 
And I would just add to what uh, Cong- Congressman McClintock says is, where do you draw the line? Uh, where do you and, – and uh, farmers uh, do a great job. I have a lot of respect for them. I have a lot of them in my district. But where do you stop the safety net and at what amount? Secondly, we've got to get to the point that we measure results, the conservation uh, payments that we send out. Let's measure if it's working or not. If it's not working, we make an adjustment. Each of us in our family businesses and in our home and our household budgets do the same thing. There's some, it's been interesting since I've been in Congress. Uh, you have all these floods of people when you start looking at things and measuring results. Uh, my customers tell me how I measure up and they either buy my product or they don't. And, uh, like Tom said, uh, we've got to get away and not just in farm subsidies. We have to look at every program because 22 trillion folks is real and it's, it's something that everything ought to be evaluated and this is just the first step. So that actually touches on a question I was, uh, wanted to ask, which is as members of Congress, you represent constituents. And so are your constituents, especially those who are involved in farming and ranching, coming to your offices and asking for the government to pass a farm bill that increases its role in their day to day operations or in Tilting the balance of who succeeds and fails in agriculture? Well, yeah. I mean, I have it every week. And there are people doing their jobs. I don't mind that. I enjoy uh, having the debate with those who have a vested interest to make sure they get the most dollars uh, for their client. I get that. Uh, if I said yes to every client, every uh, salesman in my office, in my business, I'd go broke. You have to discern what's meaningful and what's not. And stepping back in, in, in the role that we play in Congress is, is discernment and is looking at it. But more importantly, it's measuring the results because the taxpayers, I think last November in, in, in November 2016 did that. They want their scrutiny. They want to make sure it's adjusted. Nothing stays the same. Farming is not the same today as it was in the 1940s and 50s. It's come a long way. Actually, my experience has been a lot of the farmers in my region of, uh, of oppose subsidies and are quite vocal about it. And it's not just because they're not getting it. Uh, you know, it's not just the farmers that are not getting those subsidies. It's also farmers who recognize the damage that those subsidies are doing to their own businesses by encouraging uh, uh, and underwriting bad decisions. Uh, and, you know, that's the other thing we've got to consider. If government wasn't tilting the um, uh, those price signals towards certain products, those farmers would probably be producing less of those products, but more of others in greater demand. And we have to ask ourselves, how, you know, how is productivity allocated? It's allocated in one of two ways. It's either consumers through their purchases telling producers what they want and in the amounts that they're willing to pay for it. Uh, or it's government officials making those decisions for you. You tell me which one's going to work out better for your life. And I'll say this. We've had farmers come in to say we're not, we don't want the subsidies. We want what's best for the country. The patient is sick, uh, meaning the, the country's sick. They don't want the dollars. And they can compete just fine like it is without those dollars. And for the most part, farmers are, are very patriotic people. They work hard. And uh, the advancements that have come in farming now, uh, my family's a part of it. They farm in, in, in eastern North Carolina. 
So he's exactly right. People are coming now to say, uh, we don't want it, and let's bypass it. But, but and I also want to emphasize that, that I do think we make a mistake focusing only on the taxpayer dollars that are going into these subsidies. That's just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, far greater damage is done to the economy by the uh, elevated prices that consumers are then forced to pay uh, for products uh, because of that artificial intervention of government. Uh, and worse still, the misallocation of resources that puts a drag on our entire economy. That's the real damage. So th- this kind of gets to a point that I talked about in my intro. So former Farm Bureau President Bob Stallman in a Washington Post article recently reportedly dismissed the out- outright the claim that farmers couldn't survive without subsidy money. He asked, why does the livestock industry survive without subsidies? Why does the specialty crop, so fruit and vegetables and nuts, industry survive? So how would you respond to his important points? He's right. <laughs> And is there any type of – I think there's – to me, I feel like there's a tale of two safety nets. And I think everybody thinks that it's all – the safety net is really – you conflate everything that's provided for livestock and especially crops, which is not much. And they survive even though they have risk. And then at the same time, you have this other kind of safety net, which is the row crops – and they get all kinds of, like, market yeah, but, revenue oriented. But don't forget, the, the, the growers of row crops could still purchase uh, uh, crop insurance in a private market. They, the, 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 the difference is the rates they pay in that private market will actually reflect the actual risk of, of, of the commodity that they are growing. And if that risk is too high, it's signaled to them through very high insurance rates. And they took, take one look at that and say, this doesn't make any economic sense. Uh, uh, I'm not going to uh, plant soybeans this year. I'm going to plant lettuce uh, uh, where the crop insurance is very low because the insurance is is reflecting the uh, the demands in the marketplace. So, uh, you know, when you speak of a safety net, we also constantly hear the uh, uh, the argument, oh, well, we, we, we have to preserve agriculture because what would happen in a war if we had to depend on some other country for our food? Well, Frederick Bastiat, the famous uh, uh, 19th century uh, economist, uh, confronted that head on and said that is pretty simple. You trade with other countries. And that is what reduces the risk of war because it increases the value of peace. Uh, uh, trade is a constant interdependence. Yes, you are dependent on the producer for certain things that he is sending you, but that producer is also a consumer is dependent upon you for certain things that you're sending him. That system works. Uh, it, it not only stabilizes markets and assures supplies uh, get where they're needed, but it also increases the value of peace and increases the cost of war. I would just add to that that, uh, you know, I, I would argue that subsidies have, have cost this country and the consumer. And, and like Tom says, if, if, if it's left up to the farmer to have to weigh like we do in, in, the, in the private sector, whether it's worth paying a, a crop insurance premium or not. And but t- bear in mind, these are just reductions. These, they're not taking the net out entirely. And if you talk to the, the ones that are representing the, the farmers, it's like you're, you're ripping the, the heart out. That's just not the case. You, we're doing it a reduction. A 12% return is a pretty good return, folks. Uh, 14% is very good. Should we, be, should we, the taxpayers, be guaranteeing that? I would make the argument uh, no. And let them be the judge on what the risk versus the reward. So I think um, one of the things we've seen 
throughout our economy and other in other areas outside of agriculture is that deregulation has led to blossoming, um, more consumer choice, better products, better service, and basically every industry that we've ever deregulated. So then shouldn't that be a model for how we treat agriculture? And if not, why do you guys think is the barrier to actually getting that through Congress and actually lessening the footprint of Washington in the day-to-day operations and the, and the global operations of agribusiness? That's the reason we're here today is, is to bring that to the forefront. i give you an example. WOTUS, Waters of the United States. Uh, the regulations over the last uh, 12 months that have been cut have been great. We need to do more of that uh, where a farmer doesn't have to get a, a, a permit to cut a logging road. Uh, how, how much water do they draw out from wells? Uh, that's the type of thing we need to be discussing. And uh, the regulations are a huge part, not just for farmers. It's, it's uh, for the business community. That's I would make the argument that's why the, the business community, that's why the country is on the right track with businesses expanding is the cut in regulations. And, and, again, the principle is applicable not only to agriculture but to all sectors of human enterprise. I mean, government does have a very important role to play in a marketplace. It is there to assure that uh, representations that are made are truthful. It's there to ensure that um, uh, contracts are enforced. In other words, you've got to tell the truth. You've got to keep your promises. And government has a very important role to play in assuring that that happens. That's the only way markets can work. It has ancillary responsibilities as well in, in terms of maintaining a stable currency, uh, uh, protecting the uh, the commons. Um, but its principal role is to assure that people tell the truth in a marketplace and that uh, the promises that they make are kept. Anything that goes beyond that uh, 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 is deducted from the productivity of the country. For example, I give you a dollar for a cup of coffee. What, what's going on in that transaction? I'm telling you that your cup of coffee is worth more to me than my dollar. And at the very same time, you're telling me that my dollar is worth more to you than your cup of coffee. When we make that exchange, we both go away the richer for it. We both go away with something of greater value than we took into that transaction. But now suppose some uh, well-meaning busybody butts his nose into this transaction and says, oh, no, 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 no. The coffee has to be in biodegradable containers and it uh, uh, has to include condiments if it's uh, served more than 25 feet from the point of sale and it has to include a swizzle stick. And I mean, you go on and on. Every one of those regulations detracts from the value of that transaction for one or both of us until the value of that transaction is destroyed. Uh, that's what overregulation does to marketplaces, uh, and that's, it's, it's uh, tr- just as true of agriculture as it is of any other uh, uh, field. And by the way, that is an area where we also need uh, to intervene on behalf of agriculture to sweep away a lot of these needless regulations uh, that are doing enormous harm. And uh, Ralph has mentioned probably the worst of them, uh, the waters of the U.S. regulations that the Obama administration tried to impose. I'll tell you a, uh, a, a real live example that we faced well, in South Carolina were the uh, a regulation that was proposed that would, would, would prohibit plastic bags because it hurt the sea turtle in the Atlantic Ocean. Now, those of you who have dealt with, uh, with shopping centers and with uh, grocery stores, they operate on a one to one and three quarter percent profit. To dictate whether you can sell a product with a plastic bag uh, is overreach. That hurts the farmer. It help, hurts the consumer. Each one of you who buys uh, groceries 
Imagine that. I didn't think you would see the light of day, but it's a battle. We face that in all over the country, and it's, it's, it doesn't make sense. Well, if, if I could just add to that point, because that, that, that goes to one of the ancillary concerns, and that is the government does have a role to play in protecting the commons. And sea turtles that got fouled up with plastic bags is, you know, one of the responsibilities that, that the government has. Uh, to protect us from that is in the commons, and if there's if the government doesn't protect the commons, nobody does, and you you end up with a real mess. Um, but the question is, what approach are you going to use? Uh, you find people for you know uh, uh, littering uh, their uh, their bags in a uh, their plastic bags in a manner that's going to get into the oceans and foul up the uh, the sea turtles. We ought to fine you, and we ought to fine you heavily, not only to prevent you from doing it again, but to show other people that's a really foolish thing to do. Um, but treating every consumer as if they were the irresponsible litter bug, uh, that is not just, uh, and it leads to gross overregulation, uh, which brings us back to the point. And the, the, the solution was, one of the solutions was a fine. If I buy, buy groceries, throw the bag out, the sea turtle ingest it, uh, kills a turtle, you pay a fine. And that was met with, that's over, that's, uh, it's too expensive, you shouldn't do it. But if you really want to solve the problem, but what you don't do is stop that. And then where do you stop uh, plastic bottles for Coca-Cola? Where do you stop, uh, uh, you know, uh, plastic containers for fruit? I mean, it goes on and on. But, but again, the answer to that is the very good laws we have against littering, not very bad right. laws that treat every consumer as if they were a scofflaw litter bug. Right. Well, that's definitely an example of overreach because you can buy shopping bags, and most people are not throwing it in the ocean. And, exactly. you know, so exactly. and we see that all across the board with regulations and in a lot of the work that we've done at Heritage on agriculture policy, we focus not simply the federal intervention when it comes to subsidies, but the federal intervention, how the federal government actually hurts farmers and ranchers through regulation. And it's something that I certainly wanted this Farm Bill to really include was regulatory reforms beyond simply some of the narrow things that I think exist in the bill, but things like WOTUS um, reform. It's certainly Congress needs, to, I think, needs to define what waters in the means. And I think the Farm Bill is a great vehicle to make that happen. Um, well, and and that's, that's an important balance, too, is we're removing uh, corporate welfare from agriculture, as many of us would like to do. We also need to be relieving it of the burdens of unnecessary regulation uh, uh, under which it's staggering. I agree. So one concern raised by <clears throat> critics of the current farm subsidy system, like me, um, is how little the agriculture committees, both the House and Senate, listen to different perspectives on the subsidy issue. You know, this is an ongoing problem where there's really no open and transparent discussion on farm subsidy reform, and really the best chance might be on the House floor. I mean, what suggestions would you have on making sure that we can have kind of a robust debate and discussion on farm subsidies in the House? Well, one of the problems is that the committees generally tend to attract people who are involved in those industries. Uh, if you have an intense interest or a constituency with an intense interest uh, uh, in the subject matter in a uh, committee, that generally tends to attract uh, such a membership. Uh, ultimately, it's, going to be, it's the responsibility of the leadership uh, to say, no, we can't have a, a, uh, an agriculture committee uh, that is entirely at the behest of um, of agribusiness. There's got to be a balance. Now, again, the partisan uh, 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 
division within the Congress assists in that, but it certainly obviously doesn't protect. I mean, ultimately, the, the leadership has got to take responsibility for the assignments they're making to these committees, and, and, and right now it is very, very lopsided, and you get very lopsided results. And it's not just agriculture. It's also the House Armed Services Committee. I can go through a long litany of uh, committees that have been highly resistant uh, to market reforms, uh, even though Republicans have been in charge of the majorities in those committees for the last eight years. And I think you exposed it. I think one way around it, uh, because you do have interests that uh, uh, certain people have interests that that they just they're going to represent. But an umpire doesn't call a game the results of the game. He calls balls and strikes. I look on this as being umpires for the nation's well-being, and I look on this as a opportunity to let's have the debate uh, on whether a subsidy for a particular product is justified and can we cut it. And let's, let's hear both sides of it. And more of it uh, is what the Heritage Foundation is doing is questioning things, which is, is uh, the only way you, you get it out in the public arena, I guess. Yeah, and, and, and that's the point I constantly make to audiences uh, everywhere I go, and that is that you know, the debates in the Congress aren't the important debates. That's merely a reflection of the real debate that goes on among the American people every day at you know, Starbucks and over backyard fences and family dinner tables. It's upon the outcome of that debate the future of the country is always decided. And once that debate is resolved, it is merely reflected in the government. So the most important thing we can be doing is what Heritage has, has, has been doing for many years, and that is to educate the public, uh, um, to encourage a debate on these issues. Uh, and when that issue is resolved among the American people, I, there's no question in my mind it would be resolved in the Congress. Jesse, we have one more question. Uh, yeah, unless there's more from the audience. Or, or, I don't know if you're turning to that. But. <clears throat> so I'm... I've been through one full farm bill. I know Mr. McClintock has been as well. Um, and Mr. Norman is trial by fire on this one. Um, and they're quite an experience. Um, I'm curious, we want that debate. We've advocated for that debate. And last farm bill, we had a very robust debate on many aspects of the farm safety net and the nutrition safety net. Um, the current process that seems to be going this time is at least inside Congress that Many people aren't going to have a seat at that table uh, if they weren't in the committee since we did not – this House Farm Bill did not go through any subcommittee markups. Uh, and now it looks like we might have a highly restrictive uh, amendment process. Um, are there any structural reforms that we need to make or that you guys uh, can make to the way Congress works, um, to the way – we just talked a little bit about how the Ag Committee um, the works um, that can get us these robust debates on the farm, but also – I would argue that we're not having these kind of robust debates where we fight about the merits on the floor and let the will of the of not just the caucus but the entire Congress bear itself out as we were promised when, uh, frankly, we took took over. Well, the, the, I, I can tell you there is a very intense debate going on within the conference right now on these very points. But your, your point's well taken. That needs to be a, a public debate. And I get back to the observation that Everett Dirksen once made. When they feel the heat, they see the light. That's the importance of a public debate on the subject. And if it's not, and it is not as important inside the halls of Congress as it is outside the halls of Congress, because once it's resolved there, it will find its way into the halls of Congress pretty fast. 
And I, I just add, this is my, I was elected in June of last year, so I'm, I'm new at this. Just to learn the acronym, acronyms of the farming bill has, has been a challenge. But no, it's, uh, it's up to people like us to challenge it and to try to have the debate. And I will tell you, uh, the work requirement in the SNAP program is a good thing. That's a positive thing to, 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 uh, to have every Democrat walk out during the, during that one 20-hour uh, for able-bodied people to have to go through and to have that as a sticking point. Um, but it's, it moves it forward. And one thing I've learned in government, different from the private sector, to turn the ship sure takes, takes longer than I was anticipating. If we should turn it over to you and have uh, hear your questions. Um, when, we, when you get the microphone, please just state your name and where you're from and ask a question and have a commentary. I have a question right here up front. I'm Barbara Bowie Whitman, and I'm a former trade negotiator. One of the things that I've been concerned about in terms of what we do to support and distort agriculture has to do with corn and sugar. Um, corn's being used for a whole lot of things that it never was 30 years ago, including high fructose corn syrup, which we then have to go out and negotiate with other countries to buy it. Mm. And I think it's bad for us, but one of the reasons high fructose corn syrup is economic to produce is because of what we do to support sugar. Now, sugar may not be in this bill, but I just like your views on the distorted uses of corn the fact that we subsidize it to stick it in our gasoline and ruin yeah. our cars, yeah. and the fact that the interaction with sugar. Well, I mean, just, just big the, the ethanol subsidies alone have, have badly distorted that market. And I, I, you, know, you look at the amount of acreage uh, for corn production taken out for human consumption and instead shifted over to ethanol production. Now, as I recall the numbers, uh, one acre of corn produces about 300 gallons of ethanol. That's it. Uh, so when you have mandates that involve multi-millions of gallons of ethanol being required, uh, you can start to do the math on how much acreage is being taken out of productive use where the market is signaling it needs it uh, into unproductive use where the government is directing it. Uh, you know, that's that's why you never want to give the government the decisions on productivity. You want consumers to have that, and the free market provides them. You know, I used a term years ago called economic democracy. It was it was a uh, catch phrase, phrase for the left. But really what economic democracy describes uh, is the workings of a free market. Every day, every consumer in the market votes with every dollar they spend on what it's going to produce. Any deviation from that, uh, when the government interferes, uh, ends up in producing less of what consumers want, more of what governments want, uh, and places an enormous drag on the economy. So, I mean, you're absolutely spot on on all of those concerns. And with ethanol, we BMW is a big uh, manufacturing company in our state. The and this was a I didn't realize this, but one of the uh, lead. Uh, uh, executives in the business was filling his car up with non-ethanol gas. And I said, why are you doing that? He says, tearing engines up. And I said, well, I thought it was small engines. He said, no, I, I trade my car in. He gets a car from BMW every other year. And he trades it in. He said, I wouldn't do that to the engine. And I just didn't realize that. A second thing, look at the water that is used for corn that is taken. And we've got a serious water issue in our state, not like the droughts in Texas and California and other states, but that's coming. So we need to have – that's the other drawback of, of the
the corn and what it's being used for, and we've got to address it. But no consumer's right mind would be making decisions that stupid. Only government can do that, and it is. Thanks for the question. We have another question. Shy audience. Okay, here, here we go. Uh, Colin O'Neill, thank you all so much for your comments. Um, I, I wonder, going to the floor next week, uh, it seems that Chairman Conaway is making his rounds. Do you think conservative voices have a uh, new point of leverage going into the floor and possible amendments? or And, and is this different from, from prior farm bills? I don't think so. I mean, I, I will tell you, I think uh, Chairman Conway is real serious. He doesn't want, does not want any poison pills to kill this bill because it's got it, it, it's got some great things in it. As I mentioned, the work requirement. Uh, secondly, we're getting zero help from Democrats. They want to torpedo the bill, and so how do we deal with that? Uh, Tom, you've dealt with that longer than I have, but it's a um, uh, is it really a poison pill that uh, what Virginia Fox has or my bill? No, it's not intended for that. It's intended to improve it. Now, if you can't get the votes, uh, do you want to go back to what's there? No. And the all the, the question we always have that, uh, you know, what's the Senate going to do? I have no idea what the Senate's going to do and what they will ultimately come up with. I know there are, what, 10 senators that uh, are affected by this bill that have farmers in the state that have a lot of influence. So whether that will – how that will affect them, I don't know. I, I think Congress could certainly use a single subject rule that governs most state legislatures, and that is you legislate on single subjects. You don't put a group of disparate subjects in the same bill. That makes it very, very difficult to sort out the good from the bad, and you end up with a big combination of both. You know, our objective should be good legislation, of, uh, and, uh, you know, and, and, and that's the selling point that's being used is we'll look at all these SNAP reforms. Well, you know, my response to that is, well, that's nice, but it doesn't go nearly as far as it should. And by the way, uh, SNAP and a lot of other programs have had their um, their authorizations expire years ago. I mean, this this obviously, well, in, in the case of SNAP, it, it, it's it's being reauthorized in this bill. We can reauthorize it any way we choose as a majority. Uh, so why don't we choose to do it right and to take the reforms that are necessary uh, to uh, uh, move people back into productive work? Uh, to discourage them from uh, uh, using these uh, these SNAP funds for junk foods and uh, and the like, um, you know, why don't we do it right? There's a rule in the House that says that no money may be appropriated except for purposes authorized by law. It requires an authorization. Now, the problem is about a third of our spending now ignores that requirement. We simply waive the rule and they've ignored it for years. But it's a good rule. It ought to be enforced. And that would then encourage a reexamination of all of these mandatory spending programs, including SNAP. Uh, but we choose not to do that. That is a choice. That's not our fate. Uh, fate, uh, fate, dear Brutus, is not in our stars but in ourselves that we are underlings. We have chosen to do it this way, and that's a bad choice. Colin, the only thing I'd add to that as far as leverage, I think we have leverage with this president. I'm hoping he won't, if certain things get stripped out, ultimately he won't sign it, and I think that'll be the case. That's a good leverage point. There's nothing in the House Farm Bill that includes any of the Trump recommendations on farm subsidies. And it's interesting that the USDA Farm Bill principles that they list, they, they talk about um, – you know, respecting, you know, making sure that the Trump administration budget requests or options are respected in the Farm Bill. 
And again, nothing from the Trump administration's budget in there. Um, any other questions? Uh, thank you, Terry Miller with the Heritage Foundation. Thank you both for a, a wonderful exposition of a variety of issues today. Um, Congressman McClintock, I'm, I'm going to put you a little bit on the spot because you just ask a series of hypothetical questions with why don't we do this, why don't we do that, talking about processes. Uh, but you didn't give an answer to that question. I don't have an answer to that question. I have tried, you know, I, I've tried with every session of the uh, 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 Congress now to get the conference to agree not to waive the rule uh, uh, that allows unauthorized appropriations. That rule has been on the books since 1836. It was there for a very good reason. But the boilerplate language we place in every appropriations bill waives the rule and makes it impossible for a member to, to raise a point of order. I have tried time and again to get the conference to not, not change the rule, simply enforce the rule. Stop waiving it. Simply enforce it. And the argument you hear back is, oh, well, there's so many important programs like the Coast Guard that are unauthorized. We'd have to stop funding all of those. My response to that is, no, you wouldn't have to stop funding any of those. You would simply have to pass the authorization required to do so. Now, you know, among the many lapsed authorizations is the EPA. I suspect that a Republican-designed EPA would be fundamentally different than the bureaucratic monstrosity that we deal with today. But instead of doing that hard work and controversial work of actually reforming the EPA, uh, we simply shovel more, we ignore the authorization requirement and simply keep shoveling money at it. Um, uh, uh, so you know, why, I don't know, I can't read minds, but I know that if, if we really wanted to restore, uh, 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 to, to, to enact the reforms that we have campaigned on, that rule is a very important rule to enforce because it would then require a reexamination of every one of the unauthorized programs that we're currently funding, and we just don't. That's a choice. Why does the Why does the Senate Republican majority choose to give Chuck Schumer and the Democrats veto control over virtually every bill that's brought to the Senate? I don't know why. I can't read minds, but I know it's a really bad choice. Let's have one more question. Else? Um, let me just close it out with one question. I kind of find it um, annoying <laughs> to when any type of amendment to reform farm subsidies is somehow referred to as a poison pill. Um, I kind of think that's uh, bad messaging in my view. So I guess a quick question is, what kind of message do you think it was sent to the American public if Congress, if the House fails to take action on to reform farm subsidies in this upcoming bill? Well, you know, it is. Uh, you know, poison pill is not a good analogy, but uh, I guess where we are today is, is perceived like that because my bill, this is not a hard bill. This is kind of a common-sense bill that's common-sense reforms that make sense. Virginia Foxes makes sense on a sugar subsidies uh, reform. But, um, you know, we've, we've, I guess, have gotten so gun-shy about what we can get through uh, the Senate and their role, and, and as Tom says, I can't read minds. But I had a gentleman the other day, and actually he was a farmer. He, I was complaining about the Senate, and he said, Mr. Norman, are you a, are you a senator? I said, no, sir. He said, you're in Congress, aren't you? I said, I'm in the House. He said, well, stop complaining about the Senate if you, if you want to change it. Raise $50 million and run for the Senate. 
and or stay in Congress. I said, you know, I thought about it. I said, you're exactly right. I need to do what my one vote could do with uh, the 434 others and let the chips fall where they may. And, and not, But what we can do is just what you're doing, being here today, the Heritage Foundation and others are doing to expose it and get the discussion on the table, which is the only way I know to, to start the process. Thank you very much to join me in thanking our panel.